Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL on this fr fine Friday morning. And with me are my two wonderful collaborators, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom as he defends the God-given right to keep and bear arms. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And we're in the midst of a series now looking at 12 good Supreme Court cases. And by the way, last week we decided that we needed to add one additional case. So I guess that makes this what they call a baker's dozen. So there's 13 cases. And we're going to stay with the theme that we were on last week of looking at the Second Amendment issue because it is so absolutely important. In fact, our Second Amendment uh, because it says that, you know, some things may or may not be necessary, but a uh, the people's right to keep and bear arms and a well-regulated militia, these are necessary to the security of a free state. That is, if you don't have those, well, <laughs> sorry, you don't get to protect your liberty and your God-given rights are uh, desperately in danger. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the next case, which was in 2022, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin. And uh, we're going to look at what this adds to our understanding of where the Supreme Court has gone uh, since the Heller case and since some other decisions have been made. Uh, we're going to try to combine those together to get a, a current understanding of where things stand while we compare that to what our founders' view was of the right to keep and bear arms. So, Phil, why don't you bring us your your view and thoughts on New York State Rifle and Pistol Association uh, v. Bruin? Oh, yes. O offers these facts of the case. The state of New York requires a person to show a special need for self-protection to receive an unrestricted license to carry a concealed firearm outside the home. Robert Nash and Brandon Koch challenged the law after New York rejected their concealed carry applications based on failure to show proper cause. A district court dismissed their claims, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed. According to the Supreme Court of the United States syllabus in this case, the key issue in was the state denied both of their applications for unrestricted licenses allegedly because Koch and Nash failed to satisfy the proper cause requirement. The syllabus continues. Petitioners then sued respondents, state officials who oversee the processing of licensing applications for declaratory and injunctive relief, alleging that re uh, respondents violated their Second and Fourteenth Amendment rights by denying their unrestricted license applications for failure to demonstrate a unique need for self-defense. The district court dismissed the petitioner's complaint, and the Court of Appeals affirmed. Both courts relied on the second court's prior decision in Kachalski versus the County of Westchester, which has sustained New York's proper cause standard, holding that the requirement was substantially related to the achievement of an important governmental interest. Let's pause at the governmental interest idea. Both courts relied on the Second Circuit uh, prior decision in Kachalski versus County of Westchester, which had sustained New York's proper cause standard, holding that the requirement was substantially related to the achievement of an important government governmental interest. This is what the Second Amendment states, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state 
the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Let's acknowledge that the state of New York government had an interest in this question. But what was its interest? The prefatory clause in the Second Amendment states that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. If we interpret that prefatory clause literally, that means that all able citizens are compelled to bear arms. If that idea seems outlandish in the United States, consider this as reported by the BBC. All healthy Swiss men aged between 18 and 34 are obliged to do military service and all are issued with assault rifles or pistols, which they are supposed to keep at home. According to the World Population Review, in 2019, the top 10 nations in gun deaths per 100,000 residents are all from Latin America, the Bahamas, and the Caribbean. The Wise Voter website reports, the United States, which is one of the most heavily armed nations in the world, ranks 32nd on the list with a rate of 4.12 gun deaths per 100,000 people. Switzerland is 160th on the list, which suggests that both a well-regulated militia, well-regulated militia, uh, is necessary to the security of the state, and gun ownership can be compatible with the safety of the population. But that is not what the New York County of Westchester was claiming when the Second Circuit Court's opinion talked about an important government interest. Case text provides this summary of Kachalski versus County of Westchester. The appeal presents a single issue. Does New York State's handgun licensing scheme violate the Second Amendment by requiring an applicant to demonstrate proper cause to obtain a license to carry a concealed handgun in public? Plaintiffs Alan Kachalski et al. all seek to carry handguns outside the home for self-defense. Each applied for and was denied a full carry concealed handgun license by one of the defendant licensing officers in the state of uh, state of defendants for failing to establish proper cause, special need for self-protection pursuant to New York penal law. The court then stated the interest of the state of New York in Kachalski versus County of Westchester due to a rise in violent crime associated with concealable uh, firearms in the early 20th century. New York enacted the Sullivan Law in 1911, which made it uh, unlawful for any person to possess without a license any pistol, revolver, or other firearm of a size which may be concealed upon the person. That argument, however, confuses correlation with cause and effect. Violent crime may have been correlated with uh, concealable firearms in the early 20th century, but that does not prove that violent crimes of that period were caused by wide circulation of firearms. The evidence from Switzerland, where the circulation of firearms is pervasive, suggests something different. So what was the opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States? Returning to New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin, the court held, New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment, uh, Amendment rights to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. One wonders why the 14th Amendment argument was necessary when the Second Amendment's meaning is clear. To see how 14th Amendment incorporation has been tied into Second Amendment cases, a second case is referenced in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin, McDonald versus the City of Chicago in 2010, also subsequent to District of Columbia versus Heller. 
according to the Supreme Court's Just You website, this is the background of that case. Four Chicago residents, including Otis McDonald, challenged a Chicago ordinance that required the registration of firearms while accepting no registrations that registrations that postdated the implementation of a handgun ban in 1982. The law also required the re-registration of handguns with a payment of an annual fee and prevented any individual from registering a, a gun again once its registration had lapsed. McDonald, who was 76 year old, 76 years old and a former maintenance engineer, pointed out that his neighborhood in Morgan Park was prone to gang-related violence as a result of drug trafficking. He had been the victim of five burglaries, so he felt that he needed a handgun for purposes of self-defense. He owned shotguns for hunting, but did not want to use those. Justia explains, building on the Supreme Court decision in District of Columbia versus Heller, in 2008, McDonald sought to expand the Second Amendment's application to state and local governments through selective incorporation. Since Heller had unfolded in the District of Columbia, the Bill of Rights was directly applicable to this federally controlled area. This meant that the right to bear arms must be deemed fundamental because of its deeply rooted presence in national history and traditions or its inherent role in protecting liberty. McDonald also offered the novel argument that the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause should be allowed to apply the Bill of Rights to state and local governments, overturning the court's 1873 decision in the Slaughterhouse case. This uh, doctrine, doctrinal shift would have allowed the Bill of Rights to be applied directly to non-federal governments without the need for incorporation. Now, the primary holding in McDonald versus City of Chicago was the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment extends the Second Amendment's right to keep and bear arms to the states, at least for traditional lawful purposes such as self-defense. But what about that reference to the 1873 Slaughterhouse case? Oyez reports these facts of the case. Louisiana passed a law that restricted slaughterhouse operations in New Orleans to a single corporation. Pursuant to the law, the Crescent City Livestock Landing and Slaughterhouse Company received the charter to run a slaughterhouse downstream from the city. No other areas around the city were permitted for slaughtering animals over the next 25 years, and existing slaughterhouses would be closed. A group of butchers argued that they would lose their right to practice their trade and earn a living under the monopoly. Specifically, they argued that the monopoly created involuntary servitude in violation of the 13th Amendment and abridged privileges or immunities, denied equal protection of the laws, and deprived them of liberty and property without due process of law in violation of the 14th Amendment. Oyez describes the court's findings in 1873. The court held that the monopoly violated neither the 13th or 14th Amendments, reasoning that these amendments were pressed, uh, passed with the narrow intent to grant full equality to former slaves. Thus, to the court, the 14th Amendment only banned the states from depriving blacks of equal rights. It did not guarantee that all citizens, regardless of race, should receive equal economic privileges by the state. Any rights guaranteed by the Privileges or Immunities Clause were limited to areas controlled by the federal government, such as access to ports and waterways, the right to run for federal office, and certain rights affecting safety on the seas. Moreover, the court held that the butchers bringing suit were not deprived of their property without due process of law because they could still earn a legal living in the area 
by slaughtering on the Crescent City company grounds. Thus, the court concluded that the Louisiana law was constitutional. Justice Stephen Johnson Field's dissent argued that the 14th Amendment could not be construed as only protecting former slaves. Rather, he believed that it incorporated strands of common law doctrine and needed to be interpreted outside of the Civil War context. This position would later become widely accepted. That whole line of thinking ought to be questioned by dissecting the Bill of Rights and interpreting each right literally. It can be argued that only the First Amendment applies to Congress and not to all federal government and territories. The Second Amendment, through the Eighth Amendments, apply to all citizens. The Ninth Amendment asserts that the First Eight Amendments are not an exclusive list and citizens may enjoy other natural rights. And the Tenth Amendment recognizes that the states enjoy powers as well as the federal government. The Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791, 74 years before the 13th Amendment was ratified, and 77 years before the 14th Amendment was ratified. It is true that according to the 13th Amendment, slavery and involuntary servitude were prohibited in the United States. Based upon this amendment, the slavery part of the amendment has worked, but the involuntary servitude part has been ignored in the case of the military draft and the implementation of personal income tax. The 14th Amendment is quite a different matter. Only sections 3 and 4 can be construed as being applicable to the period immediately after the war between the states. Thus, the assumption that the 14th Amendment does not apply unless a majority of the Supreme Court says so in a specific case is a corruption of language. It is true that the First Amendment should be rewritten to include all government entities, but continually hearing Bill of Rights cases as if some exception exists is madness. We see this in the progression of the right to bear arms cases brought before the Supreme Court of the United States. Narrowly interpreted, District of Columbia versus Heller applied only to federally controlled areas. McDonald versus Chicago, while favorable to Second Amendment supporters, minimally expanded the right to bear arms, as did Kochalski versus County of Westchester. Note this statement in the court's finding in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Since Heller and McDonald, the courts of appeals have de- developed a two-step framework for analyzing Second Amendment challenges that combines history with means ends uh, scrutiny. The court rejects that two-part approach as having one step too many. Step one is broadly consistent with Heller which demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text as informed by history. But Heller and McDonald do not support a second step that applies means and scrutiny in the Second Amendment context. Heller's methodology centered on constitutional text and history. It did not invoke any means ends test such as strict or immediate scrutiny, and it expressly rejected any interest balancing inquiry akin to intermediate scrutiny. Apparently, that rules out further challenges by state governments based upon those governments establishing arbitrary case-by-case judgments to apply against those who wish to bear arms. It's doubtful, however, that anti-gun proponents will be satisfied. We are not likely to have seen the last gun control case come before the Supreme Court. (laughs) Yes, Phil, I believe you're correct that there probably will be uh, additional cases that uh, wind up coming before the Supreme Court, and uh, these issues get debated because there's people who believe that uh, you know guns are the problem. They think that uh, guns kill people. Well, no, no, no. 
guns in the hands of criminals are when murder takes place. And it doesn't seem that that somehow uh, enters the brains of, of these who demand gun control. Because you look at the cities across the nation, including Chicago. Chicago is a really good example of this. You look at the cities across the nation that have the most strict gun control laws and they have the highest murder rates. So it's like, wait a minute, this does not compute. How in the world can you say that gun control works when the evidence is clearly uh, it, it does not work? Thank you, especially for going into the details about uh, this case and the background of this case. You know, one of the things I thought was interesting is uh, Justice Stephen Johnson's uh, Johnson Fields dissent. He actually referred back to common law. He said this incorporated the strands of common law doctrine. And so we need to kind of ask, well, what, what does he mean by that? What is he referring to? Well, if you go to our founders, it's clear what they meant when they talked about common law, obviously referenced in our uh, U.S. Constitution and, and the uh, Bill of Rights, Seventh Amendment. But the, the phrase really that captures their understanding of common law is in the Declaration of Independence, which speaks of the laws of nature and nature's God. That was the entire foundation of what law was in this country as it was founded. In fact, the very idea that they could separate from Great Britain, that they could well, you know, the king said it was a rebellion against him. They said, no, no, no. We're obeying the laws of nature and nature's God. King, you are in disobedience. You are in violation of the laws of nature and nature's God. And this is where we need to grasp what the Second Amendment is talking about. You see, the idea is that phrase shall not infringe, one of the strongest phrases of any in our Constitution. It is based upon the laws of of nature and nature's God. How so? Well, the laws of nature and nature's God takes us right back to the Ten Commandments, the uh, Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. You might say, well, wait a minute, that seems to be the opposite of what you're saying that you have a right to keep and bear arms. Well, yes, you have a right to keep and bear arms because of the command, thou shalt not murder. You see, every negative command that the God has given in the scripture, and by the way, it's important to note that these commands as negative commands severely restrict what the civil government is to be about and what it is to do. Because in other words, they're to leave you alone uh, in your relationships with other people unless you commit murder. There's a whole, diff a whole different uh, level of freedom. So the, the negative commands just say, this is what the civil government is supposed to be about. Thou shalt not murder. Now, we know that every negative command in God's word also has a positive corollary. So, for example, let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. It says, let him that stole steal no more. There's the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. So the negative, don't steal, has a positive, and the positive corollary is that we ought to work hard with our hands such that we have a surplus that we can give to those who are in need. It's the exact opposite. So every negative command has a positive corollary, and that is true of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. It entails positive duties, and those positive duties we have in the laws of nature and nature's God those positive duties are that we are to defend life. That is part of what God's commands are in that sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. So for example, in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 and 12, it says, if thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, so speaking about somebody who's being uh, going to be killed, and it's an unjust taking of human life, it's a, a form of murder. 
If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, well, behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart, that's God, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? So it's saying here in Proverbs 24, 11 and 12, that if we see a situation where we could intervene, and prevent someone from being murdered, and we do nothing. God is going to hold us accountable because we have a duty, a God-given duty that is connected with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, God-given duty to protect and defend life. It's part of the commandments of God. And the commandments of God are even more specific to those who are in families, and most of us are in families of one sort or another. So if we're married, a husband has this duty towards his wife. If we have children, we have this duty towards our children. If we have relatives, we have this duty toward our, our relatives. And this is given in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. But if any provide not for his own, own especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And what more important provision could you offer to your family, to your wife, to your children, uh, to those, your mother, father? What more important provision could you offer to them than the protection of their life, their God-given right to life? And so the scripture, the law of God is very, very clear. We not only have a, a duty to keep our hands off the throat of our neighbor, not to murder our neighbor. We have the duty to defend life wherever uh, life is threatened to be taken unjustly. And so that includes that uh, in a situation where there's a deadly force presenting itself, either attacking our own life or attacking that life of, of someone that we have an obligation to defend, we ought to be armed with the deadly force to defend life. In fact, when you look at it, there are far more on every day, on a day-by-day -day basis, there are far more incidences where guns save lives than guns take lives. And you say, well, maybe, oh, Jesus, he didn't say anything about this, did he? Oh, well, actually he did. Because in the upper room, just before he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was betrayed by a Judas, this is what Jesus said to his disciples. This is Luke chapter 22 and verse 36. Then said Jesus unto them, but now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and, and likewise his script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Jesus told his disciples to get themselves armed. And that uh, gladius was a, a short sword used in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And Jesus was not encouraging the overthrow of the Roman Empire, but rather saying, you need this sword for purposes of self-defense and defense of uh, your neighbor. And this is the basis of the well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state that everyone in the design of our founders, every male over the age of 18 was to be trained and armed and equipped, but equipped and armed with his own armaments, which is uh, traces back in English common law to the only king in England called Great, that is Alfred the Great. He required all able-bodied men to purchase weapons, that is with their own funds, and to be purchased that purchase those weapons and be available for military duty. This was the origins of the militia. And so it's very clear that our founders, based on that English common law, and that's why I appreciate uh, Justice Stephen Johnson Field he, he referring to uh, you know, the strands of common law doctrine. I think he, he takes things in the wrong direction. But if you look at the actual view, 
This meant that our founders knew that everyone should be trained, everyone should be prepared, everyone should be armed. And our framers saw clearly that individual ownership of firearms was a protection against tyranny. They knew what King George III had done. They knew that uh, Lexington and Concord happened because King George III was attempting to confiscate the armaments of the people to disarm them so they could not oppose his tyranny. That's why they had gone uh, to Lexington in, in, uh, in the first place. And so our founders said things like uh, Samuel Adams, the Constitution shall never be construed to prevent the people of the United States who are peaceable citizens from keeping their own arms. Uh, most pointedly, uh, I've quoted this before, I think it, it bears repeating, Noah Webster, before a standing army or a tyrannical government can rule, the people must be disarmed, as they are in almost every kingdom in Europe. The supreme power in America cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword because the whole body of the people are armed and constitute a force superior to any band of regular or professional troops that can be on any pretense raised in the United States. And so the, the Second Amendment really is a protection against tyranny. It's not for, you know, hunting ducks because you prefer uh, to hunt ducks or deer. Or whatever. No, 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 that's fine. But that's not what it's really about. It's really about protecting us from tyranny when a civil government decides that instead of obeying the law, instead of fulfilling the oath of office that they've taken to uphold the Constitution, they decide they're going to pillage us. They're going to rob us. They're going to destroy us. They're going to steal our property and, you know, force us to get a poison injection and all kinds of other uh, things that they may choose to do. You see, uh, the state constitutions also reflected this, uh, that, uh, for example, my own state here of Maryland, which is largely an anti-Second Amendment state, they're very opposed in our government, but they're in violation of their oath of office because Article uh, 9 of our state constitution says the General Assembly, that is the legislative branch, shall make from time to time such provisions for organizing, equipping, and disciplining the militia as the exigency may require and pass laws to promote volunteer militia organizations as may afford them effectual encouragement. So the job, according to our state constitution of the state legislature, is that they should be passing laws that encourage and help organize and help discipline. Instead, they do the exact opposite. They pass laws to disarm the militia, which means they're in absolute violation of uh, of our constitution and they're they're akin to king george the third who as they said in the declaration of independence one of his 27 crimes against the colonists one of his 27 violations of the laws of nature and nature's god was this he has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislature and sadly that's what we have today we have a standing army and perhaps only one state out of the 50 states actually has a state militia that is actually functioning. The exact opposite of what our, what our founders wanted. They did not want a standing army, but they did want every state to have a functioning militia. And so while we might debate about 14th Amendment and corporation doctrine and so on, it is clear the Second Amendment applies to all the states because the five mentions of the militia in our constitution. The Second Amendment is just one of five mentions. It's an essential part of the structure. Every state should have a militia. The federal government should be hounding the states and perhaps fining the states or some way disciplining the states who do not have a militia, who are not in compliance with our constitution because they swore an oath to uphold the constitution. What are they doing? Sadly, it seems they're doing the exact opposite of upholding uh, that oath that they swore 
uh, to our United States Constitution. Well, Mike, what are your thoughts on uh, on this case? I got a lot of thoughts, Pastor Whitney. <laughs> well, so. Thank you so much. Uh, this is a, a, a glorious day for we the people today. I want to review some of the legal game tape here, so to speak, so we can get the landscape of what's going on here for our listeners. You know, last week we talked about Heller and its narrow holding, really amounting to the idea that the Second Amendment protects at least the right to have firearms that are in common use at the time in the home for self-defense. The decision did not expand beyond the front door, and that became a point of contention in many subsequent cases, but until the Bruin case, they had not made it to the Supreme Court dealing with that particular issue. Though the McDonald versus the city of Chicago case held that the Second Amendment protections outlined in Heller do apply to the states, we still had many states that functionally had a concealed carry license scheme in place. Um, but as a matter of practice, they would not grant them. To put this into perspective, we have 13 million residents in Pennsylvania and over 1.5 million people have a Pennsylvania license to carry firearms. In New Jersey, on the other hand, there are approximately 9 million residents, but before the Bruin case, fewer than 600 people were actually issued what they call a permit to carry. Would you think about that? This issue is very close to home for me, being raised in Brooklyn, New York, and then going to high school in Staten Island, because spending the first 19 years of my life in New York, I didn't know a single person who lawfully owned firearms. And as a result, the only people who owned firearms were the NYPD, the police, and of course the criminals. If you knew someone had a gun growing up, it meant they were a criminal or a police officer. Now, after going to Oklahoma Baptist University and realizing that in other parts of America, people can legally own firearms to protect themselves and their families from violent criminals, I fully realized how fundamentally unfair New York's oppressive gun laws truly were. In law school, it seemed very frequent on the Oklahoma news to see that an old lady was the victim of a home invasion and shot the intruder dead. Of course, I don't want people to have to die, but I would simply rather it be the home invading intruder than the innocent old lady. The reason these carry license schemes in places like New York and New Jersey were so restrictive is they required the applicant to show justifiable need. So in order to be granted, you would have to show that you had some kind of a special circumstance that made you need to be armed. And they were very picky. It's not as simple as, I carry cash for work. Or even as simple as, I have a stalker. They basically wanted you to show photos of the stalker outside your house, in a tree, with a knife, and medical records that he's stabbed you in the past and police reports documenting these incidents. That's how far they wanted you to go. For example, my colleague Evan Knappen had a case in New Jersey where a man applied for a permit to carry, and he worked at Picatinny Arsenal. Terrorists had threatened Picatinny Arsenal. The judge denied his permit application and said that the terrorists had only threatened Picatinny Arsenal. They hadn't threatened the applicant personally. Now, practically speaking, these permits were issued only to those who were powerful and politically connected. But the regular hard-working American was left at a major disadvantage to the criminals. John Lott, the author of More Guns, Less Crime, has cited, cited statistics to show that the availability of concealed carry has the most significant positive impact on the elderly and minorities in the inner cities, who would otherwise be victims of crime in high-crime areas. The Second Amendment challenges to this point had traditionally been analyzed with a two-part test, one involving a test regarding the three tiers of scrutiny. And we've spoken about 
The judge made tiers of scrutiny in the past, and it always baffled me how the Second Amendment was not analyzed under the strict scrutiny approach, because I could not think of any other context where an enumerated fundamental right was not analyzed under the strict scrutiny standard. But the court in this case said this two-part analysis is not even proper. It had to go. We got left with a history, text, and tradition analysis. Now, throughout this decision, there was also some more discussion about quote-unquote sensitive places, as we discussed with Heller last week. And Justice Thomas wrote specifically, and I quote, To be clear, even if a modern-day regulation is not a dead ringer for historical precursors, it still may be analogous enough to pass constitutional muster. For example, courts can use analogies to long-standing laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings to determine whether modern regulations are constitutionally permissible. That said, respondents attempt to characterize New York's proper cause requirement as a sensitive place law lacks merit because there is no historical basis for New York to effectively declare the island of Manhattan a sensitive place simply because it is crowded and protected generally by the New York City Police Department. If you go deeper into the sensitive place discussion, it almost seemed like Justice Thomas was offering an invitation to Second Amendment supporters to bring future challenges against some of the current prohibitions based upon locations. Because when you look at the sensitive places and how Justice Thomas characterizes them, it seems like they are limited to places like courthouses that had guards and metal detectors because the entity or establishment is putting the onus of protection on themselves and not just telling people, you can't arm yourself, and also, your protection is not our problem. I remember listening to the oral arguments on this case and thinking that there is no way the government can possibly win this thing if the court doesn't punt the issue. And that was the concern of a lot of people who were waiting on the decision of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case. And they figured that there was a good chance that the judges would figure out some kind of way to issue a ruling but not make any big changes, n not make any waves, so to speak. And they've done this a whole lot with the Second Amendment over the years. It's either there's a ruling on a technicality or the ruling's so extremely limited that it can't possibly apply anywhere else. We don't get any legitimate standards, and it's this endless cycle of litigation. But I knew they were in trouble when one of the government attorneys argued that you can't just let people have guns in New York because then they might bring guns on the train. I believe it was Justice Alito who asked, you don't think people already bring guns on the train? And the government attorney said, no, they don't. And he said, you don't believe that criminals illegally bring guns on the train as is? And the attorney was like, no, no, of course not. As if that's where the criminals will draw the line. <laughs> They're violent criminals, not monsters. They wouldn't bring a gun on the train. That's preposterous. <laughs> it just showed what kind of alternative universe a lot of these anti-gun folks live in. Well, indeed, it's, it's tragic that they have a view that, again, they don't see the real problem isn't the guns. I mean, they, they think the guns uh, saw a humorous, uh, I forget it was Babylon B or one of these humorous, but a, a, a AK-47 being put on trial. You know, <laughs> and it's set over there in the chair and all kinds of questions are being thrown out. Of course, it can't respond. And, you know, and finally, the defense attorney gets up and says, look, this thing can't possibly respond because this thing can't, this guy over here who got shot, who shot him? Oh, a gun shot him. No, no, no. Somebody held the gun. Somebody pulled the trigger. Who was that? And the 
you know, the, the person who was shot refused to identify that there was a human being that picked up the gun and a human being actually shot. And so it goes on and the judge, of course, biased against the gun and so on. But it's fascinating. The very end of the, the, the sketch is that, uh, you know, the, the attorney defending the gun uh, picks up a mug and says, well, if I took this mug and I threw it at someone, would the mug actually be uh, the criminal here? Would the mug have to be put on trial? And uh, the the point is, of course, it would be a mugging. <laughs> it's a mug. That's pretty good. But that that is such a, a true uh, viewpoint that we see when it comes to the way the anti-gun folks attack the guns themselves rather than the responsible parties. Because when you think about it, in any other context, if somebody does something crazy or violent or heinous with any other item, they don't look to the item itself, right? Somebody runs people over with a truck like we've seen. They'll say, wow, that person's really crazy. Look at that sick individual. Somebody stabs a bunch of people. You say, that guy's nuts. That individual needs to be locked up. If they make a, a bomb with a pressure cooker, uh, same thing. Look at these animals. But somebody shoots something, somebody else with a gun, some violent criminal shoots somebody with a gun, and the first response is, we got to take everybody's guns away who didn't do anything wrong. And that's I, that's the problem that they're not recognizing is the people who oppose these further gun restrictions. It's not that they don't mind when people get innocently killed. I mean, that's ludicrous to say something like that. They say it all the time on the anti-gun side, but it's absolutely ridiculous. They know it's not true. The bottom line is that you have people who didn't do anything wrong and are being punished for something that somebody else has done wrong. And the punishment puts them at a disadvantage to have the ability to protect themselves and their families. And that's it couldn't be more unfair than that. And I think it really calls back the idea of the problem is the view of human nature. Uh, the, the leftists want to view human beings as innocent. Human beings couldn't possibly be guilty. It's never their fault. Never their fault. Even when they commit some heinous crime, it must be blamed on their environment. Oh, they grew up in the ghetto or their parents didn't do the proper job in potty training them or whatever it is, you know, didn't change their diapers. I don't know what thousand different excuses basically saying the human being is good. The problem is their environment. And if you change their environment, human beings will always do what is good and right, which is the opposite of what scripture tells us. The reality is human beings are sinners. They've fallen. Uh, they violate God's law. They have a heart of sin and a heart of rebellion against God. And until they repent until they believe what the word of God says, until they come to faith in Jesus Christ and receive him as their Lord and Savior, their heart is corrupt and evil and evil things they will do because of what's in their heart, not what environment they are raised in. And so the left has rejected that uh, our founders worldview, really the biblical worldview that uh, the problem is in the heart of man. And they think that somehow if we can change the environment, in this case, let's get rid of all the guns. And by the way, this has been tried. I think uh, London has outlawed all guns. Nobody can legally own a gun in London. Has that ended murder? No. Thousand plus, I think it was close to 2,000 people last year were murdered in London with knives. That's right. They were at knife attacks instead of guns. So it's like, okay, the criminal just figured out a different weapon. He couldn't use the gun, so he's going to use the knife, maybe a chainsaw. He's going to use something to murder other people because of his evil heart. It's not the object he uses. It's the evil heart. And that's why you know, the advancement of Christianity and the encouragement of Christianity is something our founders said was essential to this experiment in liberty working. 
You know, our second president, John, uh, John Adams, said this Constitution will only work for a moral, that is, people who obey God's law, a moral and religious, by which he meant Christian, a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the governance of any other. And that's why we see the kind of uh, you know, anarchy in the cities that we see, uh, that it is the heart of man is, is the problem that needs to be addressed. Pastor, you talked about uh, the fact that in... In England, they had these gun control laws, and you have these uh, incidents taking place with knives. Well, now they're imposing extremely stringent knife restrictions over there, <laughs> and they'll s- simply run out of things to ban before they come to their senses, is what's going to happen. And the, I heard somebody once say that numbers don't lie, but you can lie with numbers. Whenever you take a look at these gun control restrictions, they'll talk about the number of gun deaths uh, that took place after the restrictions, they will very infrequently talk to you about where the violent crime as a whole has gone in the aftermath of that. Uh, The question becomes, are we concerned about crimes that take place with guns or violent crime in general? Do we want more victims of violent crime as long as fewer somehow take place with a firearm, which may or may not be true in the first place? Um, It's a disingenuous argument. Another thing that you'll see them mention is, let's say, a place like England has uh, more gun control and they've got lower violent crime than the United States. Well, that's not a, a proper comparison because they always have, even before gun control, and if you look at the statistics, that the violent crime actually went up after those restrictions as a whole. So comparing it to the United States is really not an adequate comparison. You talked also earlier about the amount of lives that guns have saved in the United States, and that's 100% true. Uh, There are various studies about this. The CDC put out a study years back that uh, somehow (laughs) doesn't get publicized very much by our own government, but they use between half a million and three million defensive gun uses every year in this country. Uh, And most people have no idea that it's anywhere nearly that high. Even if you go by a study that was done by an anti-gun organization for their own purposes, let's presume for the sake of this discussion, that's the number we're going to use. They say that you have approximately 60,000 defensive gun uses every year in this country. So let's use that low, low number just for the purposes of discussion. Well, if you listen to anti-gun knuckleheads on the news, you constantly hear about how we lose approximately 30,000 lives to gun violence every year in this country. No, it's not 300 million like Biden said during the debates. (laughs) (laughs) Almost all of us would be dead if that were the case. (laughs) But uh, the 30,000 is the number that they typically use. What they will not tell you about those 30,000 lost to quote-unquote gun violence is that approximately two-thirds of that 30,000 number are accounted for by suicides. Now, I'm not saying that suicide isn't horrible. I'm not saying that we don't feel bad for their family members. What I am saying is that it's disingenuous at best to put suicide in the category of gun violence as an excuse to take people's gun rights away and their ability to protect themselves and their families. They also include justifiable homicides in those statistics, and the vast overwhelming majority of what's left consists of inner city gang violence. So if you look at the cold hard numbers, on the lowest end we have 60,000 defensive gun uses every year in this country on the lowest end, versus fewer than 10,000 lives lost. And I hate to sound cold and talk about it in numbers, because these are lives that we're talking about, but the fact of the matter is, those numbers show that guns save lives, period. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent excellent point. 
Another thing that I think people ought to think about, and one of the tools that the uh, anti-gunners have and they continue to use is anytime there's a mass shooting, and mass shooting can be, you know, two or three people shot, but anytime there's a mass shooting, uh, they then cry loudly, look at this, look at this, we got to take away everybody's guns, of course we got to take, look at this, uh, you know, we got to limit magazine size, and on and on it goes uh, of those who want to grab the guns from the hands of the people, but never do they talk about what happens at that scene, at the scene of the crime, when the shooting begins, and somebody's got their cell phone, what do, who do they call, you know? Uh, do they, they simply call the hospital? No, they call the police. And what do the police show up with? They show up in force with a SWAT team. And what are they? They're armed with guns, lots of guns, far more guns than are, are present at the scene at the time the shooting began, right? And so, wait a minute, that, that should make people scratch their head. If the guns are the problem, why do we bring guns to the scene of a mass shooting to solve the problem of the mass shooting and stop the mass shooter. You know, it's like there's a disconnect. And, and again, the propagandists have uh, full control of, of uh, our media and they're going to sell us these lies. But if people simply thought about it and looked at the reality, when we have a, a situation that is uh, endangering the lives of people, what do we do? Well, we call the police. What do the police show up with? A lot more guns than actively shooting in that scene because those guns are going to put a stop to the murder that that has taken place right in front of us. You know, people are often critical of God and critical of guns, but when something bad happens, those very same people, the first thing they do is pray that somebody with a gun shows up. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Uh, but this is this is an issue, as Phil said. We're going to continue to litigate this for the rest of time, probably. I don't see this going anywhere anytime soon. I think that you hit on something when you're talking about how um, people have lost their faith in God and everything like that, and that's had a significant impact on our society. Even the mayor of New York City, who is very much on the left, there's no doubt about that, has acknowledged that when we took prayer out of schools, that's when we started to see these types of issues come into play, because it's certainly not access to firearms. You know, I have people tell me about how when they were young, growing up in school, people had firearms with them on the school bus and everybody, when they got old enough, had guns in their truck during hunting season and nobody ever shot up the school. It's a, a change in heart. It's a change in values. It's a, it's a demise of the, the family unit that's taken place in this country. That's why you see places like Baltimore, Maryland, that sometimes can't keep the murder rate to one a day. It's astronomical compared to the population, and they've got some of the most oppressive gun laws in the country. Newark, New Jersey, same thing. You have violent crime through the roof, yet you can't write another gun law, and these people are eventually going to have to admit to themselves, although they probably never will out loud, that gun control does not solve murder, and it takes something much more than that in order to, to cure this problem. And you have to Actually, it actually takes work. You have to get into these communities. And, uh, you know, when we've seen the country stray away from God, that's when we see these problems. There's no doubt about that. You can't deny I it. I understand that at one time, uh, the Bobbies, who were the uh, the local police uh, in London, for example, uh, were not armed. It was only relatively recently that they have been uh, armed. And what, what you realize is that um, in Britain, uh, the it was such a peaceable uh, environment until relatively recently 
that they could do that. And so I think what we, we need to, to realize, and I think Mike, you're saying the same thing, is that there have been ch- changes in the culture. And that's why we have a great deal more tension in our culture today than we did a half century ago, or even a, going back further, certainly. And you know, unless you're able to get in there and work, the very, very difficult work, by the way, to change the culture, you know, blaming blaming uh, murders on and and violent crime on guns just is absolutely senseless. Well, you know, Mike, you brought up the point about taking prayer out of school, but the other thing they took out of school, this is 1980, Stone v. Graham, they took the Ten Commandments down off the schoolhouse walls. And, and what's the Sixth Commandment? Thou shalt not murder. And it's fascinating to read what the Supreme Court wrote in their opinion, Stone v. Graham. And let me quote them verbatim. If the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read, meditate upon, perhaps to venerate and obey the commandments. And they continue, however desirable this might be as a matter of private devotion, it is not a permissible state objective under the Establishment Clause. In other words, we can't teach children thou shalt not murder because that's the Sixth Commandment on the Ten Commandments. And we cannot allow the Ten Commandments to be displayed because the children might possibly read the Ten Commandments. Oh, that's impermissible. And they might meditate and think about the Ten Commandments, and they might even venerate the Ten Commandments. Oh, and heaven forbid they should obey the Ten Commandments. So think of that. In 1980, they set a trajectory in which the school children were not just taught that uh, Ten Commandments are forbidden. You can't see them. They taught children in our schools by example that murder was fine. That is if the address of the victim of murder was specifically the womb of their mother. It's 1973, Roe v. Wade. Murdering babies was fine in the womb and they taught every child, every child who, you know, was born after 1973, they knew they were a survivor. That is, their mother could have murdered them. And actually, the state so approved of those murders of those babies that the state would actually pay for the murder. So, of course, these children are uh, they're not taught the Ten Commandments. Instead, they're taught abortion is fine and legal and maybe even euthanasia is a good idea. And so why why are we surprised when mass murderers graduate from high school, come back and shoot up their school, shoot up the teachers, shoot up the other fellow students because they were taught murder is fine and they were never taught what the Ten Commandments said because the Supreme Court said, oh, that's an impermissible. Wait a minute. That's insanity. Why would you want an institution raising children to be murderers? But essentially, I think that's what, what has been accomplished. And I'm surprised that we don't have more mass murderers who have graduated uh, from the uh, from the schools uh, in, in our country since 1980. You know, speaking of teaching values, the, there seems to be no problem whatsoever about teaching um, one, uh, how to change their, their gender uh, with the use of, of uh, drugs and surgery. So, you know, I think the, the government people and the, the people on the left are very, very much uh, hypocrites in the sense that they, they ban any kind of uh, uh, value teaching that is based upon religion. And yet here they are with their own religion. You know, they're, they're teaching their own religion, their own values. No, good point. And, you know, they, they claim that because their religion is somehow secular, however they define that, that that's perfectly fine to be taught. But don't you dare teach Christianity. And by the way, many schools allow uh, Muslim uh, theology to be taught and children to learn Muslim prayers and other things like that. Uh, so it's like, 
what we have founded our entire republic upon, the laws of nature and nature's God, the Declaration of Independence says that's the foundation, has now been obliterated. The Supreme Court has wiped it out, which means their own legitimacy is then questioned. How can they legitimately exist if they've abolished the foundation upon which the entire federal government and our state governments was constructed? You know, if I could go back to the uh, uh, the Second Amendment uh, language, I, I find two things that are less than ideal in in the federal constitution. Uh, number one is the treatment of of uh, individual rights as an afterthought. I think is a big, big mistake. And also, we can look at the language and say, mm, you know, maybe that prefatory comment uh, could be dispensed with. I have a copy of the uh, uh, Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in front of me, and this is what it says in the first article, which is dedicated to the rights of the people, by the way. Before governments can be formed, the, the rights of the people must be affirmed according to uh, the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. This is what it says. The right to bear arms, the right of the citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state shall not be questioned. Doesn't get much better than it that, does, does it, Phil? <laughs> I've said for years that if they would have only done that for the Second Amendment, we wouldn't we wouldn't have half of these yeah. discussions because there's no mention of the militia, you know, no well-regulated business. It says for defense of themselves and the state. So it gives you the purpose there because Heller was all about whether it applies for self-defense. It's just pretty remarkable the way they wrote that. And if we had people who understood their state constitutions, we would have people who would recognize that, again, uh, the standard is there. It's very clear. Uh, and, and with that clear standard that uh, we shouldn't allow our governments to disarm us, because if they do, as our founder said, they're only preparing us to tyrannize us, to take away all of our God-given rights, God-given right to liberty, God-given right to property, and perhaps even our God-given right to life if we don't have the means by which uh, to defend our God-given rights. So it's a, it's a fascinating debate, but what we need to have happen is the people of America need to wake up and see what our founders understood about these issues related to our God-given right to keep and bear arms. And by the way, that's why we exist here at We the People, the Constitution Matters, to help you citizens be able to spread abroad a grassroots understanding across our country of people who understand our source of liberty that is rooted in our founding documents. So we invite you to uh, join us again on Friday mornings at, at 8 a.m., but also check out our podcast, We the People, The Constitution Matters. Click on podcast. We're at the very bottom of the list there, We the People, and let other people know about this show. Maybe send them a link to this podcast so that they can learn the founder's view regarding the right to keep and bear arms. Well, we invite you also to check out uh, Mike Jeremita's show, just before our 7 o'clock Friday morning, Mike G in the morning. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the Freedom Airways at WFYL. Join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m. <laughs>